Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that reveals your word. Thank you for the mercy and grace that gave us your word. Where we didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it. You just gave it as a gift. Lord, tonight I ask simply that you would give us the Holy Spirit, the ability by the Holy Spirit to understand your word and open our eyes to see it and hear it and believe it and obey it and live under its authority. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, i got to tell you, if you were here last week, I had a teaser at the end, and the teaser was the, uh, the high priest from the order of Melchizedek. Now, Hebrews deals a lot with this Melchizedek guy, and I said, I'm only going to just bring him up and touch on him because later in Hebrews we'll get into detail. And then, because that was the last verse I covered last week. I'm being fair about that. I think that was uh, verse 10 of chapter 5. And I'll start with verse 11. And if you miss this transition, you're going to miss the point tonight. Because he starts talking about this high priest from the order of Melchizedek. And then suddenly he takes, the Hebrew writer takes an absolute turn in verse 11 from this spiritual high priest Melchizedek Old Testament Jerusalem without father and mother without beginning or end and then suddenly he totally transforms the spiritual high priest thought into something totally different spiritual growth spiritual growth we've gone from this deep thinking mystery spiritual high priest to spiritual growth it almost looks out of place until you get it it's almost like the hebrew writer infers that you're not going to understand anymore right now anyway so i'm not going to go on so here we go verse 11 there is much more we would like to say about this now what's the this if you go back to the previous verse Jesus is the high priest from the order of Melchizedek. There's much more I'd like to say about this, but it is difficult to explain, especially <laughs> since you are spiritually dull. That's not nice. And you don't seem to listen. You've been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's Word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature. You know what the solid food is in this analogy? The high priest in the order of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. But if you just think you can just take anybody and get them to understand how Jesus fulfills the role of the high priest from the order of Melchizedek in the New Testament and the New Covenant, you know who's going to understand that? People who are mature. You're not going to just throw that out and everybody say, well, well, I get that. Because they're not going to get that. And that's what he's saying. Verse 14, solid food is for those who are mature, who through training, what training? Biblical training who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. So here comes the question in context of this verse. How deep is deep enough? How deep is deep enough? How bright is bright enough? He calls them dull. You know what? He's he's like, you're, you're not the brightest light in the lampstand. How dull is too dull? How bright's bright enough? How deep is deep enough? How much study is enough study to get solid food that leads to maturity? How much study is enough? When could you ever read this book and get it all? I don't think it's possible. What level would you have to be at to understand what the Hebrew writer pauses in the story to communicate? I wish I could tell you about Melchizedek, but it'll take some time. That's what, he's, that's what he's saying. He's not being rude. He's not being crude. It's a, it's a truth. Now, I would like to take this opportunity to talk about the issue of modern-day Christian, American Christianity in this light. The American church is in trouble. 
I mean, let's face it. The American church is in trouble. Why? Because it's barely drinking milk. I mean, I, the American church barely, in this analogy, it's not the American church is not, not on solid food. I, I don't even think the American church is drinking much milk these days. Many churches, most people in the church today don't know and don't study the Bible. Let's just say it. And again, I'm not trying to offend anybody in the room, but, but let's, let's be real with ourselves, okay? Let's be real with ourselves. How much time do you spend in this book, in, in, in your search for God? How much time? Or, or would you, and again, I, it's not my job to measure your spiritual depth or your job to measure my spiritual depth, but would you measure your own spiritual depth, depth and say, how am I doing? Am I on milk? Am I getting that powdery stuff? You know, I'm off the total milk. I'm getting that powder. I'm in yogurt right now. And then I'll go to cottage cheese. And then I'll maybe eat something solid. Many churches that have survived the postmodern abandonment, that's what I'll call it, the postmodern abandonment of truth. You know what? The ones that have survived, if you look at them, many of them are a mile wide and an inch deep. And you know what that means? There's a whole lot of them, but none of them have any depth. They don't know the Word. Because I'm going to tell you, if the American church knew the Word, the trouble the American church is having in this society would go away. It'd disappear. You think we'd have church people going to the gay, ride, gay pride rally down in Frankfurt this coming weekend if the church knew what this book says about that? Now, Terry, you're a hater. See, that's why you can say you're a hater because people have no idea what this says. That's why they can label you with that as if somehow or another, I wrote this book. I didn't write this book. I just believe the book's the word of God. But if you get the church not knowing what's in here and you let the world tell you how to interpret it when you don't even know it, they can tell you you're a hater and you start thinking, feeling guilty. Well, I guess I am. I better be quiet about that. There are exceptions. I pray this is an exception. Those who have held on to the authority of Scripture. And guess what? They are belittled as simpletons considered radical fundamentalists. I actually had somebody one time call me a fundamentalist. And you know, I said, thank you very much. Because if you look up the word, it's one who adheres to a strict standard of interpretation. Yeah, I do. I'm a fundamentalist. And let me say something. I had a lunch with Bob Russell this week, went to a conference over at Frankfurt, and had a chance to sit down and have lunch with him after he had been here a couple weeks ago while I was preaching somewhere else. And I don't think he was giving me something that makes me feel good. I think he was being very legitimate and sincere. He said, Terry, i got to tell you that me and a buddy of mine that always travels with me to different churches when I speak, we both left Nineveh and both of us looked at each other, each other and said this, that is the friendliest church I have been into in two years. And he said, that's not the big thing. They pay attention. They listen. He said, I go into a lot of places, and I'm talking, I look out, and they're doing everything but listening. He said, but I went into Nineveh, and, he, and I looked out in the crowd, and that crowd has got me in the eye. They are listening to me. Now, I hope what God's doing here is an exception to the rule of the average American church. We actually believe that the Bible's the Word of God, and we're seriously intentional on trying to figure out what He wants to say to us in these last days. Now, read verse 11 and 12 again and tell me what it would mean today. I'm going to go back up and read it again. There is much more we'd like to say about this high priest in the order of Melchizedek. I'll insert that. But it is difficult to explain, especially since you're spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. You've been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you about the basic things of God's Word. You're still like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. Dull about what? Here we go. You're spiritually dull. Dull about what? 
Don't listen to what? Should be teaching now what? What's he specifically referring to? Because if we're going to address this, we've got to identify this. What's this? The word is the truth, and without the word, we will not be able to discern right from wrong. That's how you get relative truth versus absolute truth. You can't tell the difference between up and down, right and wrong, left and right, good and evil, unless you, are, unless you have a basis of interpretation. Relative truth says there is nothing absolutely true. Absolute truth says there are definable truths that do not change over time. I believe what I hold in my hand is the only physical source of absolute truth on this planet. It is the standard by which, by which truth will be measured. Not my opinion, not your opinion, not based on, well, it was different in the 60s than it is today. No, it's, it's standard. It's God's Word. He establishes truth. The concept, now let's go back to the teaching. The concept of an ancient high priest named Melchizedek is out of reach to a church that does not live to know the Word of God like it is the bread of life. And let me illustrate. There's a prominent preacher, and I've talked about it before. I'm not going to go into it deeply. There's a prominent preacher in the U.S. with thousands and thousands of people come to his church, and he has said that the Old Testament has become a stumbling block to Christianity. A stumbling block to Christianity. And in the New Testament, the Hebrew writer says, I wish I could tell you about the Old Testament high priest Melchizedek, but you don't, you're not deep enough. And here's a, a trained preacher from a, a famous seminary who says, we don't even need the Old Testament. We don't even need it. We, we, don't, we don't need to understand why Jesus is a high priest from the order of Melchizedek, even though it's in the New Testament. It's in the New Covenant. Now, I can listen to him or I can listen to the book of Hebrews. I'm gleaning with the book of Hebrews. It's been around longer. Every time I get on this topic, something immediately pops into my mind. I, I believe it's the Holy Spirit. I remember what Jesus told the church of Philadelphia. There are seven churches in the, in the Revelation. And he looks at each one and gives them a good news, bad news scenario. Philadelphia didn't get much bad news. So you ought to lean toward Philadelphia, okay? But he does say something to Philadelphia in light of today's topic. Let me read it to you. Revelation 3, 7. To the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write, write okay, Jesus is saying, write this down. What? what? These are the words... I'm going to hold it up. These are, the one, these are the words of one who's holy and true. Now, how would you know that if this weren't in the book? If, I, if you didn't read this, how would you know that what I'm about to say are the words of the one who is holy and true? Does it matter? I think it's going to, because he's talking to a church. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. Now, and by the way, the church age is open. Right now, today, the church age is open. It opened on the day of Pentecost. What he opens, no one can shut. You're living in the open door of the church age. He's talking to a church in the end times. It's a real church, but it's a reference to an end time picture. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds, Church of Philadelphia, church in the last days. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know, I know you church people have little strength. He knows it. He knows we don't, combined, what are we going to do in the world we live in? I know you have little strength, yet, here it comes, here it comes. Yet two things you do, church people, in the last day. Yet you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. There you go. I'm going to tell you what. You'll want that on your resume later on in life. I know you got little strength. Yet I know this about you, Church of Philadelphia. You have kept my word and you have not denied my name. So what's he going to do in response to that? 
I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, but they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Whoa. And since you have kept, and since you have kept my command to endure patiently. Don't, don't, don't read over it. Endure patiently what? You kept my name and you kept my word. When it wasn't popular to keep my name and when it wasn't popular to keep my word, you kept it anyway. You endured patiently. So I'm going to do something for you, Church of Philadelphia. Here it comes. I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Now I'm going to tell you, I believe that is the tribulation. I believe that, that he will, I will keep you who keep my name and my word, who endure patiently. I will keep you from the time of testing that's going to come upon the whole world. What do you think that is? What time of testing is going to come upon the whole world? I believe it's the tribulation, the seven years of hell on earth. What does that mean? I believe that the church will be gone before that occurs. I will keep you from the time of testing, from the hour of trial that's going to come upon the whole earth to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have. What do you have? Church, what do we got? In the end, what have we got? Don't say, I got a house and a car. What do you got, church? I got the word and I got the name. I got the word and the name. Non-negotiable. You don't get the word and you don't get the name. You know what that means? Is there any place you won't say the name Jesus? Is there any place you'd be reluctant to bring him up? He said, if you're ashamed of me in this world, I'll be ashamed at you, of you when we enter my Father's kingdom. Don't be embarrassed about that name. Is it, no, why? Why? There's a reason for this. Is it possible to keep the word, to keep the name if you don't know the name and you don't know the word. What's this about tonight? I wish I could take you to a new level, the Hebrew writer says, but I can't because you don't even know the word. Chapter 6 continues this same charge to become mature and hungry students of the Bible. And I want to say this. You're here on a Wednesday night. Obviously, you have an interest in this topic. Or I don't believe you'd be here on a Wednesday night. And, and I'll say this about this church. I applaud you. How many people on a Wednesday night can get 200 people to come out and study the book of Hebrews? I don't know very many, but you're here. So I'm not fussing. I'm not fussing, okay? I'm thanking you. Verse 1, chapter 6. So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Can anybody see where he's going? He says, I want to go way over here to this big stuff. And yet, I am forced to stay over here with the fundamentals because I can't get the church to go with me. That's what he's saying. That's not what I'm saying. That's what he's saying. So let us stop going over the basic teachings of Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely, we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting. Y'all think I need to do that? You know how many times I have to keep coming back and back and back and back to repentance? Why? Anybody want to guess? Because it's in the church. It's in the church. Sin's in the church. I wish we could move on. Does that mean we never sin? Is that what it is? No, that, that is not what that means. If you think that's what it means, then you're still, you're still on milk. What's he say? Surely we don't need to start again with this fundamental importance. This is grade school stuff in christianity what repent <laughs> repentance of evil deeds and placing your faith in god why do we have to keep bringing that up well because there's new people coming in you know i get that you ever think about on a sunday morning the average sunday morning there's 800 people in a room here two services 400 400 one of the challenges is that we got people in this room on sunday morning who are on milk and we got people on this room on Sunday morning who are on meat and, and you got to provide a diet 
that satisfies the needs of the audience in general. You can't just always be doing the milk, and you can't just always be doing the meat, right? Or you're going to miss those who are babies. But the problem becomes when you have to stay, this writer is, is struggling with the idea that we have to keep coming back to the fundamentals because it looks like the milk people are never becoming the meat people. They're staying on milk too long. Verse 2. You don't need further instructions about, or do you? Do you need further instructions about baptism? Do we got to keep talking about that? Do we? You know, I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings, but I have, there's people in this room tonight that have been baptized. Why do I have to keep bringing that up? Why, why, why can't I move on? You know why I can't move on? Because there's people in this room who haven't been baptized. So I can't move on. But look what he says. You don't need further instruction about baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. And so, God willing, we'll move forward with further understanding. We'll, we'll, we'll do some other stuff. Do you see it? If the church continually has to deal with repentance from evil, it's because people don't understand the fundamentals of the faith. And, and folks, do you think the modern American church isn't struggling with this? The modern American church won't even talk about repentance, much less move from repentance to something important. That's why I say it's a mile wide and an inch deep. There's a lot of people, but none of them are deep. That's why they don't even understand the word repentance. So let me, let me prove it to you. Here's what I'm going to do tonight. You, you, you're, you're probably not going to, well, I'm not going to say that don't understand if you don't understand these fundamentals so here's what we're going to do we're going to talk about these fundamentals so we can move on i can't go to chapter seven until we do this right that's what he says that's not what i say but that's what he says if they don't understand this what what is this repentance that come calls to faith if that's the milk fundamental why is it the milk fundamental well let's go to the book of romans i told you the bible teaches the bible the bible explains the bible over in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, Well, then, should we keep on sinning so that God can give us more and more of his wonderful grace? That's what the average church wants to say today. Of course not. Since we've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when you were, we were joined with Christ and Jesus in baptism, there comes one of these other fundamentals, we joined him in death, which means you died. Did you forget? You died when you came to Christ. Spiritually speaking, the old you's gone. Why does that new person keep showing back up? That old person keeps showing back up. For we died. And we were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live what? New lives. It can't be about what you used to be. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised, with, raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. So no longer, we're no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free by something. What's it? By the power. It set us free from the power of sin. The power of Christ set us free from the power of sin. So we can check this one off right now, right? We, we can move on. The milk, nobody needs any more milk. We talked about, shall we continue in sin because God's grace is incredible? No. What? I died to sin when I died with Christ in baptism. So why in the world would I want to think that sinning, deliberate, willful rebellion against God is what grace was given for? So let's move on. 1 John 5, 16. If you see a Christian, here we go. You want something difficult? Here we go. If you see a Christian, brother, sister, sinning in a way that does not lead to death, you know what that means, don't you? Church people, right. We, 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 if we're going to move over here to Melchizedek, we ought to get the fundamentals. If you see a brother and sister sinning in a way that does not lead to death, what are you supposed to do? You should pray, and God will give that person life. I know at first everybody's going to say, what's the sin that leads to death? 
But there is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying you should pray for those who commit it. Better pray for all the other ones. But if you're going to pray for the other ones, you might ought to figure out what that one is. All wicked actions are sin. But not every sin leads to death. Now I need to stop. Because y'all giving me that look already. What is the sin that leads to death? What, what is it? What, what, what is that thing that I'm not even supposed to pray for you if you're in it? As if I could tell you're in it. I can't even pray for you because it won't work. What is it? I'm not going to pretend like this is easy because I don't think this is easy either. There's an unpardonable sin. That's what we used to call it when I was a kid. In fact, I remember a revival preacher bringing it up one time, and I'm thinking, oh, no, would have already did it. <laughs> I did. I thought that. I was sitting in that pew, and I'm thinking, I better as well go home. If I did it, just go and tell me. I'll go to the house. I'm ruined. If you can't get over it, if you can't recover from it, and you already got it, well, what's the point of staying in church? What is it? Refusing the power of the Holy Spirit. Refusing it. No one can come to the Son unless the Father draws him. So God's doing something, okay? Let's just say God's doing something. And God's doing something. He's having, you, he's having the Word applied to your life. He's having the Holy Spirit applied to your life. He's having the light applied to your darkness. And in the Word and in the light and in the Spirit, you consistently say, no, 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 no. Or maybe, maybe, I'll take it a step further, we'll get into it in a few minutes, maybe you've tasted it, you liked it, it looked good, and you started partaking of it, got you a little milk, and then later, you got distracted, and you said no, no, no. There comes a point, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know where that's at. There comes a point. There comes a point where you cross a line. And when you cross that line, you can't come back. Now, if you think I think that, then I'll show you it is not my thinking. It's God's Word. There comes a point. What's the unpardonable sin? Let me, let me put it in specific terms. A person gets before the judgment of God. And that person is not forgiven of their sin. They're not forgiven. All their sins are still on them. They are not redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They have committed the unpardonable sin. What is the unpardonable sin? The unpardonable sin is to not to be forgiven. Why, do you want to make, why does anybody want to make this complicated? It is unpardonable to stand before God unforgiven. You have, you have said no to the pardon. That's why it's unpardonable. Because the pardon was the blood of Christ. And you refused the blood of Christ. Thus, it is unpardonable because you said no to the only thing that means yes. You said no. So you stand before God, your sins are on you. Nothing can save you. You're lost. You can't recover. There is no recovery. Now, if, okay, preacher, I get it. That's on, that's on the last day when I stand before God. How do I know when somebody's in that stage while they're still breathing air? I don't know. So, you know, because I don't know, I'm going to pray for you anyway. I'll pray for you anyway. And you know what else? I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit and the Word and the light and the truth and all this stuff still see. And if you keep bouncing it off, you won't stand, I won't stand before God on the last day and Him say, I told you to tell them, and you didn't. Verse 18. This goes a little deeper. A little deeper. We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning. We know that, right? Right? Somebody say amen. You know that, right? We don't have to go back and talk about the fundamentals of this again. We know that God's children don't make a practice of sinning. That doesn't mean we never sin. What does it mean? That when we do sin, we're burdened with guilt. And repentance is generated by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit says, you, you, you got to deal with this. You don't stuff it. You don't pretend like it's not real. You don't, you don't ignore the counsel of the wise people around you. What do, what do you do? Lord, I blew it. Lord, I confess. As if he doesn't know. 
okay? As if he doesn't know. He knows. So just tell him. Tell him. Like your kids. Okay, y'all got, got children? Which, which would you prefer? The child who's messed up, who's absolutely willfully disobeyed you, and he struggles with it, struggles with it two or three days, and finally that kid comes up and says, Dad, I did it. It's me. It's me. What do I? You know, I wire you out. Is that it? Huh? Which one am I more, more likely to be angry with? The one who refuses to accept responsibility and acknowledge his guilt. Which one are you more likely to give grace and mercy to? The one who will confess and ask, let's make things right. And listen, we're sinful, and we look at it like that. How would a perfect God look at it? He's way higher on the scale than we can think. We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning. For God's Son holds them securely, and the evil one cannot touch them, right? There's the Holy Spirit's conviction that when I do sin, when I do pull a stupid, the Holy Spirit convicts me. Verse 19, we know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. And you, we know, look how many we knows there are in here. These are fundamentals. We know that the Son of God has come. He has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God. He is eternal life. Do we need to talk about baptism? We've talked about repentance. We've talked about, let's talk about baptism. I'm going to make it one verse simple. Mark 16, 16. Anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved. Anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. Somebody comes to me, and you know how many times this happens? Preacher, do I have to be baptized? And I just want to say, when you grew up, were there a lot of people that died when they were baptized? Did they drown? Was there a lot of casualties in your growing up experience? Dead people on baptism day? What is this? He... He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Then why wouldn't you run up here and get baptized? Why? What is this? The best illustration I ever heard was Francis Chan. Francis Chan told a story one time, and I'll give you the brief version. You know, in Acts chapter 2, when the church on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached a sermon, he didn't write, and what, 3,000 people said, what must we do to be saved? You know what? Not a single person in that group said, do I have to be baptized? You know what they said? What are we going to do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This gift is for you and for your children and all who will follow your children. So, you know what? 3,000 people got baptized. But you know what? We're too intellectual now. We're too smart. No, you know what, preacher? I'm saved by grace. By, by, you know, not by works. Baptism's a work. I don't need that. You're drinking milk. You don't have a clue. You don't have a clue. What is this? What does it mean? Why do we have to talk about something that is so simple? Why can't we move on to something important? I'm not belittling the importance of baptism. I'm saying these are fundamentals. The church, mature church, ought to be passed. What about the laying on of hands? Let's keep going. We'll get through the fundamentals. We can talk about Melchizedek next time. James 5.13, are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call the elders of the church and come pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. If you've committed any sins, you'll be forgiven. I want to tell you, it's a regular practice of this church that the elders will lay on hands and pray and anoint their head with oil. I've had two situations in the last two weeks. People have come into my office. That we never talk about who they are. It's a very personal, private thing. Situations, they've come into my office. We anoint their head with oil and we pray. A prayer of faith. Why? I believe in the power of God. Power of God. We just simply, how's it work, preacher? I don't know. Just do what it says. We're trying to outsmart yourself. It's really not that hard to outsmart yourself. 
Just do what it says. Acts 13, 2. What did they do when they got ready to send out the Apostle Paul? One day, as the men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, you know what that means? Jesus in the Spirit. Jesus said, dedicate Barnabas and Saul for a special work to which I have called them. So after fasting and more prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. What? This, 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 the ability for someone around us who is in Christ to strengthen us with their faith on top of our faith. That's why the church is the church. We need each other. We need each other. What about the resurrection of the dead? You know why I'm bringing up these topics? Because every one of these are specifically called out in Hebrews as the fundamentals that we got to go past. So let's hit it. Resurrection from the dead. The Bible explains the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Tell me this. Since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there's no resurrection from the dead? And if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. And we apostles would, be all, would all be lying about God. For we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are what? 2,000 years of Christianity. They're what? They're all lost. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, if, you do not, if you're struggling with the resurrection, the fundamental of the resurrection, you're struggling with Christianity itself. But I mean, let me take a step further. If you're afraid to die, if you're afraid to die, do you believe in the resurrection? I had this conversation with somebody just this week. L listen, somebody asked me this question. I said, I can honestly say, and, I, and nobody knows until they get to that point, I, I don't think I'm afraid to die in any way, shape, or form. I'm afraid of being sick long term. That kind of scares me. I can't be more transparent than what I just said. I have this fear that I would be long-term ill. That would be terrible. In fact, I would think if I thought I was going to be long-term ill, I would say, Lord, let's, let's go. Let's do this. But that's not my call either. But the reality is, if you sit in the room tonight and you believe in the resurrection of the dead, then why would any of us be afraid to die? That I stop breathing? My heart quits, my brain stops, a light flashes, I look at this angel, and this angel looks at me, and he says, let's go, and I say, hey, hey, <laughs> and we go to the place of Abraham's side in a place called paradise, and there I spend time with him until Christ returns with a loud shout, and then my body will rise from wherever Janet puts it. And then I come back with Christ, and in the air, and in the air, read First Thessalonians, and in the air, my body comes out of the ground, and me, I get a new body to put me in. And I've been hanging out at paradise, and, I, and, I, and we come together in the clouds, and it says, and there we shall be with the Lord forevermore. Why am I afraid to die? Now, I don't want to be sick. Do you believe in the resurrection? If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then every one of us ought to go home. We ought to go home. Now here's where all this is about. Can you teach others about what I just taught you? You should be able to. I challenge you. Every one of you. You know the power this church would have if all of us could teach? If all of us were teachers? And all of us knew we're teachers. And we're called teachers. And listen, I know he gives different people spiritual gifts. I, I know that. I know that. Please don't tell me that after church. I, I know that. But in some way, we all know this. So we should be doing this. Can we move into deeper truths, leaving behind these basic fundamentals? Do you want, do you want one? Because here it comes. Now, I don't know if I can set this up well enough. Do you want a bigger, deeper truth? Bigger, deeper 
Well, here comes a big one. Verse 4, back in Hebrews. For it is impossible. Uh Uh-oh. It is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened. Those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, I've got to go slow with this one. This is deep. It's impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, which means what? They have, they have the Holy Spirit. They have, well, how does he say it? That those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven, they've shared in the Holy Spirit, they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come. It's impossible if, you, if you've crossed over into the light You've crossed over and the Holy Spirit has now come into you. You've tasted the word. You saw the word. You received the word. You believed the word. The Holy Spirit enters you. It's impossible to bring back to repentance. What does that mean? Someone who's gone over into the truth and then, verse 6, and then they turn away from God. Can you bring them back? Wait a minute. I thought you couldn't turn away from God. The evidence of this verse is that you can turn away from God. But you've got to understand the second part of the evidence. That when you do turn away from God, that's at some point, I, I don't know where those lines are, you can't come back. It's impossible to bring back to repentance. Those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven, shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come, and who then and who then turn away from God. It is impossible. That's the second time it says it's impossible. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance by rejecting the Son of God. They themselves are nailing Him to the cross once again and holding Him up to public shame. This is the sin that leads to death. This is it. This is it. There's a sin that leads to death. Yes, there's a point of no return. A sin that leads to death. There is no forgiveness without repentance, and there's a place where repentance is out of reach. Notice how it words it. It's impossible to bring this person to repentance. God offers salvation. Listen carefully. I want everybody to get this really specifically. There is a salvation offered by God. He offers salvation. But there's a point where a person's heart becomes so hardened that they cannot see or hear God's calling of salvation. So has God withdrawn salvation? God's God's salvation is offered to everyone. His salvation is offered. This example in Hebrews 6 is a person has has had the offer. He has received the offer and then rejected the offer. And he cannot come back to repentance because it's not that the offer has, has disappeared. The offer is still there. They can't see the offer. They can't see it. They can't believe it. They can't hear it. They don't understand it anymore. Why? Their heart became hard. I'm going to tell you in a minute, I'm going to tell you in a minute how you get a hard heart. How does that happen? I'll show you. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me give it a label. I don't know how many of you read those weekly emails I send out, but it kind of applies. Um, it's an apostasy. It's a rebellion. And, and, and the Bible says that there, this rebellion will happen in the last days, specifically. I'm not saying it didn't happen before the last days, it didn't happen a thousand years ago. I think it did. I think it'll happen more as we get closer to the return of Christ. What? This, what I'm talking about. People who have once been enlightened who will fall away. People who once had the Holy Spirit and they once had the Word who will reject both. It is impossible to bring them to repentance. Ooh, is that heavy? I didn't write it. Hebrews 4.1 God's promise of entering his rest still stands. Then why can't they come to repentance? Because their hearts are too hard. God's promise to enter his rest still stands, so we ought to tremble with fear that some might fail to experience it. 
Who are these people who might fail to experience this rest? Who are they? They are the apostasy. They are the lost in the last days. Hebrews 2.1. So we must listen carefully to this truth we have heard. Or we, we, if we don't listen carefully, we may drift away from it. For the message God delivered through angels has always stood firm. And every violation of the law and act of disobedience was punished. So what makes us think that we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak? This scripture from Jeremiah was about Israel. They had tasted, right? They had experienced. They had tasted. They saw God. They saw the pillar of fire. They saw it all. They heard the word. They got the word. But they refused to repent. Jeremiah 5, 3. Lord, you are searching for honesty. You struck your people, but they paid no attention. You crushed them, but they refused to be corrected. They are determined with faces set like stone. They have refused to repent. Now, I, I, when I read that um, it is impossible to bring back to repentance, that's what I started thinking. Of. They refuse to repent. Matthew 12, <coughs> verse 41. These are the words of Christ. And by the way, these are New Testament. This is church age. Jesus says the people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it. For Nineveh, for they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here. But you what? What's Jesus' charge against those people? One much greater than Jonah came, and you refused to repent. They repented when Jonah came. And then here comes Jesus, but you won't repent. The queen of Sheba will also stand up against this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it. For she came from a distant land to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now someone greater than Solomon is here, but you won't listen. You won't listen. Back to Hebrews. Next verse. Verse 7. When the ground soaks up the falling rain and bears a good crop for the farmer, it has God's blessing. But if a field bears thorns and thistles, it is useless. The farmer will soon condemn that field, and what? He'll burn it. Does the fruit matter? Ask the farmer who owns the field. I didn't write this. Does the fruit matter? Does our fruit truly represent our heart? Jesus also tells a story about a farmer and seeds. I told you a few minutes ago I was going to illustrate something about, well, let me just read it. Before I read it, let me say this on that last scripture. God will one day condemn, God will one day condemn the field and set it on fire. This is his field. It's earth. He has already told us very clearly, multiple applications. One day he plans to condemn the field and purify it with fire. The whole earth. Now, bear in mind, go back up to Hebrews 6, verse 8. Go back up to Hebrews 6, verse 8. But if a field bears thorns and thistles, it is useless. The farmer will soon condemn the field and burn it. Where, where do you think he's going with that? Now, Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 8. This, and then he explains the parable so it can't be misinterpreted. Here's Jesus' explanation of the parable of the sower. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is God's word. Is that complicated? That ought to be real easy. I'm holding it up. The seed that the farmer goes out to sow is God's word. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message. So they heard the word of God, right? Only to have the devil come and take it away from their hearts and prevent them from believing and prevent them from being saved. So let's stop for a moment. There are people who heard the message the message is God's word, and a messenger of God sent the word out, right? Sowed the seed. And the person heard it, but they did not receive it. They're compared to a footpath. They are prevented by Satan from believing it and being saved. But there's a second category. Verse 13, the seeds on the rocky soil represent those who hear the message and listen, 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 listen. And these people are different than the rock, than the, the path people. 
they receive it with joy. They receive the word. Huh. But since they don't have deep roots, what, they never could get off of that milk. They believe for a while, and then they do something that a lot of people say you can't do. They fall away when they face temptation. And then there's, there's a third group. The seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear the message, but they all too quickly, the message is crowded out by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and so they never grow up to maturity. There's the milk people again. They never grow up to maturity. And the seeds, excuse me, they never grow up to maturity. So what about those people? You know, you know what their problem was? Too much competition. Competition of the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the simple pride of life, the boasting about what man has and does. Competition, right? Okay, finally, finally, the reason the farmer sows seeds is the next one. And the seed that fell on good soil represent honest, good-hearted people who hear God's word, cling to it, cling to it, and patiently produce a huge harvest. The seed that fell on rocky soil tasted its goodness, received it, but fell away. What's the point? What is the point that falling away is beyond repentance? Let me put it another way. In fact, here's, this is big. Were all the soil types saved or just the last one? Who's saved in this story? You know, the average church person either can't or won't answer the question. Who's saved in this, in this story? The guy, Jesus is, these are people. These are people. The seed was sowed on the footpath. Well, he never received it in the first place, right? So you can kind of say he's in big trouble. Then you got the rocky soil people. He received it with joy, and then he fell away. Well, but he's saved, right? Really? Really? What about that next guy? There's thorns, and the thorns means he got all tangled up in the affairs of this world, and he got to running after money, and, you know, I got a business to take care of, and I got all this stuff to do, you know, and I'm busy. Did he make it? Every church person won't answer the question. Because I'm going to tell you, there's one group in this that finds salvation. It's the last one. One day God's going to condemn the field and burn it up. It's his field. Finally, let's go to verse 9. Back in Hebrews. Dear friends, even though we're talking this way, we really don't believe it applies to you. I hope that's me tonight in this room. Even though I'm talking, even though I had to go through all this tonight, and I'd like to move on, quite frankly, I'd like to move on to the next chapter. Even though we're talking this way, we really don't believe it applies to you. We're confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love for him by caring for other believers as you still do. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. Then you will not become spiritually dull. What's going to keep you motivated from becoming spiritually dull? What? Hope. Did you catch it? What you hope for will come true. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and their endurance. Faith and endurance, they produce a constant and eternal hope. Then the Hebrew writer gives an example of faith and endurance. Who is it? Abraham. Abraham is the standard of faith and endurance. We should measure, all of us in this room, we should measure our faith and our hope against his standard, his record. Why? Because I've noticed that church people like to let the world define faith. It's a bad idea. Don't let the world tell you what faith is. Let the Bible tell you what faith is. Faith is what Abraham had. 
Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he became God's friend. He believed God, right? So if you want to know what believing God means, read the story of Abraham. He's the pattern, the standard of our faith. So let's read what that looks like. I'm going right on down through Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. For example, there was God's promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name, saying, I will certainly bless you, Abraham, and I will multiply your descendants, Abraham, beyond number. Then Abraham waited patiently, and he received what God had promised. Now, what does that have to do with us? Abraham believed God, and he responded to God's promise by something. Listen to me. He believed God. He heard the word. The sower came out to sow the seed. He heard the word. And he responded to the word of God, the promises of God, the oath of God, the covenant of God. He responded with what? Faith. Abraham endured in his faith through times of trouble and times of doubt. That endurance is also called faith. Do you think you can have faith without endurance? It's not faith unless it's connected to endurance. You can't have saving faith in your rearview mirror. Your saving faith has to be where you are. It can't be that, well, I used to believe. Faith, then that's not faith. You surrendered your faith. This is where hope comes in. And I want to say something. You heard me say this at church, and now this is very personal for me. I am convinced that hope, my hope, is the fuel of my faith. I, want you to, I don't want you to leave here until you understand what that means. That's powerful to me. I am convinced, looking at my life, evaluating my life and what motivates me, my hope is the fuel of my faith. My hope is that something incredible is coming. It's closer than it was yesterday. It's mine. Nobody can take it away from me. And it is mind-blowing wonderful. And it's coming over the hill. In fact, I can almost see it. And it's coming. Every day it's closer. And my faith, hope, is the fuel of my faith. If I ever stopped hoping that that thing's coming, I wonder what would happen to my faith. You see it? Abraham had a promise. He, his hope was built on a promise. And God said, I'm gonna, I can't swear by anything greater than myself, so I'll swear by myself. Then I promise you, I will do all of this for you. And you know what? You're going to promise. Something marvelous is coming. It's just over the hill. It's heading your way. If you'll hang on, if you'll hang on, it's called faith. If you'll hang on to the promise, where'd you, where'd you hear about that promise? It's in the Word. You're going to hang on to that. Verse 16. Now when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure. <laughs> Somebody say hallelujah. Can be perfectly sure that God would never change his mind. Say, well, Terry, I didn't mean that for you. He can never change his mind. Why? Well, he made a promise, an oath by his own self. So God has given us both. Here it is. Here it is. A promise and an oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to what? The hope that lies before us. Confidence. My hope is coming. I'm about to change the back of the t-shirts. My hope is coming. Heaven's coming. My faith is powered by the promises and the oath of God's word. And that's what I hope for. My hope anchors me in times of trouble. And because I know the promises of God through the Word of God, I know what I hope for. I know what's coming. And when you're in trouble, you're going to need to know what's coming. And when you face opposition and persecution, you're going to need to know what's coming. You know what's going to keep you in the game? Because you know what's coming. And you know what might be the first problem with you wanting to get out of the game? You forget what's coming. Because something's coming. Finally, verse 19 and 20. We'll stop. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor 
for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. The very thing he wouldn't talk about in the beginning of the chapter is the thing he ends with at the end. What? I can talk about it again now because what? We covered all the fundamentals and y'all going to stop drinking milk. I love that sentence. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. You think you need a soul anchor? Yeah, you do. You know what it is? God promised you on an oath. What? Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, Terry Cooper. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and get you, Terry Cooper. That where I am, there you will be forever. And then he said, I promise. And he sealed it in the blood of his son. And what do you think he ought to do if I turn away from that promise and reject it? What do you think he ought to do? He, he sent his own son to the blood sanctify the promise. What do you think he ought to do? If I turn away from that blood sacrifice, you know, I've heard people say, you know, I can't believe a loving God would send anybody to hell. He didn't send anybody to hell. You sent yourself to hell. You sent yourself to hell. There's what? Because you said, no, thank you the greatest promise ever given to anyone in the world. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this oath, this promise. And today we stand in this hope. It is an anchor for our souls that you cannot lie. You cannot lie. And what you have promised, you will deliver. So Father, we know that heaven is coming for each one of us. A place in your kingdom. And we hold to your word, the promises. And I pray for your church to be strong. And the Father, we would grow to maturity so that we might go on to places and things that, Lord, you want your church to do in these last days. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.